Hello and welcome to an Asia Rising podcast. Latrobe Asia has a public event around surrogacy and reproductive travel in Asia. It's on at the State Library of Victoria on Friday 12th of December and it starts at 3pm. You can register for the event and find out more about it on their website, which is at latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast where we examine the news, events and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Professor Nick Bisley, Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. In today's podcast, we look at the year that was in Asia, the events that happened and made our headlines and what could be coming in 2015. Thanks for joining me, Nick. Thanks, Matt. Let's start with a year ago, the end of 2014. As compared to now, how would you describe the situation broadly as changing? From a political landscape, would you see it as more democratic, more tumultuous? Is Asia, which has always been a, a big player on the economic platform, an even bigger consideration? So where would you briefly see it being from a year ago to today? Yeah, I, th- I think roll the clock back and sort of think, what did we think in December 2013, 2014 would hold for us? There were some things we knew were going to happen, the two big elections in India and Indonesia, although I think no one would have predicted exactly how those elections played out in terms of the results. Another coup in Thailand, on the one hand, sadly predictable, but also I think somewhat unexpected given Thailand's recent trends. The economy in, in Asia continues to be the main story from a global point of view. Asia, and particularly China, is the engine for economic growth around the world. The post global financial crisis, recessionary periods in Europe and North America have been much longer and deeper than many people anticipated. And I think without Chinese-driven growth, the world economy as a whole would be a lot worse off. On the back of that, Asian economic growth has been in 2014 continued tensions that's coming from that growth. So as Asia's states are getting richer and as Asia's peoples are getting richer, we're finding that Asian states are finding more to fight about and having greater capacity to make good on their ambitions or to try to make good on what they see to be past injustices. So territorial disputes in the East China Sea, in the South China Sea, disputes between India and China across their borders, and then the long-running historical tensions between Japan and China continue to be fueled by this economic growth. Let's go into that a bit. Do you think that that, as a result, is going to take up more of the global attention and that that's going to become a focus point, particularly the, the tension between Japan and China at the moment? I mean, this is simplifying it a lot, but it's over a bunch of small islands that are not significant to either of them, but it's just the fact that they are there. The dispute between Japan and China, at the moment, the centerpiece of it is these islands, what the Japanese call the Senkaku Islands, that the Chinese call the Diaoyu Islands. And each claims them as their own historical territories. Each claims the other's historical claims are, are not just wrong, but unjust. The islands in themselves don't have any immediate obvious benefits. You know, there's, not, there's no population or resources on them. There's no resources on them, but there is thought to be fairly substantial oil and gas reserves under the sea within the territorial waters that go to whoever claims them. Mm. So there is some economic benefit there. But if it was just about that, then two reasonable states who got along with each other could figure out a way of splitting the difference on economic development, 50-50 split of, of resources. And that happens in lots of parts of the world. The islands themselves are a reflection of, of a deeper set of tensions between 
what was Asia's number one economic power, Japan, and Asia's new number one economic power, China. We had in the APEC meeting recently, the first meeting of Xi Jinping and Prime Minister Abe, the two paramount leaders of Japan and China, and there was this handshake that, and if you've seen the imagery of it, it was amazing. I mean, it looked like Xi Jinping, his little boy, had been forced to eat his lima beans or something, you know, had the really look of utter distaste. Now, that was clearly a bit staged for domestic consumption in China, but I'm probably wrong to think that getting those two together to shake hands is going to resolve these tensions and we're going to get on with economic development and everything's going to be okay. The tension between them is historical. It's about nationalism and who's going to be able to set the terms of the international game in the future. China has one view and Japan's pretty uneasy about that. So do you think it has the potential to, to spill out onto a, a wider global platform then? It certainly has prospects to spiral out of control. If there's some conflagration between Japan and China, it would be of global consequence. Firstly, because Japan has an alliance with the United States. And so if there's any conflict between the two, the United States is involved. And if we end up with a conflict between China and the United States, then we have a big global problem. Mm. It's not likely to be a global phenomenon militarily speaking, if that would occur of the kind that World War II was at the moment, because the nature of their interests are not those kind of imperial holdings that existed that turned World War II into this big global contest. But its ramifications on the global economy, on geopolitics, and I think for Australian and for Australians would be very, very manifest and very, very significant. It's unlikely for that to occur, but I think the prospect of tensions over these islands getting out of control is very real. It's not likely. I think neither side is going to set out to pick a fight with the other, that an accident could very easily happen. Let's move on now to uh, tales of happier times with the elections in both India and <clears throat> Indonesia, which brought very popular leaders of the people, I think, into power is, is a good way to explain both mm. Modi and Jokowi. Are we in some ways going to see the trend of, of what's happened in the US with Obama, whereas you've, you've elected somebody who's so inspirational that they can't live up to their reputation? You're right. The big parallel between Jokowi and Modi is the rise of the kind of the political outsider. So in both Indonesia and India, you have the really for the first time a very popular leader who is a kind of quote unquote normal person comes from outside the political class that has dominated political office in the post-independence period. Now, Indonesia hasn't been a democracy for as long as India, but Jokowi is really the first guy who's pulled himself up by his bootstraps, not out of the kind of ruling clique. And equally in India, even though it's been a democracy since its independence in the late 1940s for Britain, has had a very small group of people who have dominated high office. Here's a guy, again, relatively poor background, proved himself extremely capable, very charismatic and very good operator, and has become the most popular Prime Minister of India in living memory. Now, as he said, in both cases for Jokowi and India, they both have a very long, very hard to-do list. The overwhelming priority is domestic economic development. And in both countries, the roadblocks for that are huge, and there is enormous amount to be done. And the capacity of one person at the pinnacle of political power to be able to clear all those roadblocks is actually relatively limited. So there is a very good prospect, I think, of both of them suffering the sort of Obama problem of inflated expectations that are unrealistic both in terms of the individual and don't reflect the constraints that you have in office. But having said that, 
This was, in both cases, extraordinarily heartening to see Asia's two big democracies, big pluralistic societies, you know, over a billion people in India, over 250 million people in Indonesia, very, very disparate populations, and yet political system worked. So mm. it worked really, really well. There was no demonstrations. I mean, you had, okay, Prabowo in Indonesia was all grumpy and was making noises about taking this thing to the constitutional court, but the whole system managed it peacefully, and he's got people who are aligned with him now in the cabinet. And in India, if anyone has been to India, you know there's always lots of problems with basic services, whether it's water, electricity, and the like. And yet the world's largest democracy puts on an amazing show over six or eight weeks to turn what's still a very very much a developing economy, a political process where people feel engaged, in which they feel they have a say, and which generates a peaceful transition of, of power. And so it's those who've said, oh, you know, Asian societies aren't ready for democracy, they need you know, the strong hand of strong central authoritarian government, here's two powerful examples that that's absolute hogwash. In these two, I think you see a really great side of what's occurring in democratic Asia. Of course, there's lots of other less positive news in the non-democratic parts of Asia or parts that were democratic. The biggest example of that, I think, at the moment is, is Thailand, which has gone completely in the opposite direction. And the military having... They staged the coup, I believe, in May, and since then there's no sign of an election or a return to democracy. In fact, quite the opposite. You've got a consolidation of power by the generals. It's one-man rule in many respects, but you've got a political structure that looks like is here for the medium term. A lot of people thought this was what was likely to occur. And then you add to this the continuing ill health of the king, who's this kind of very vital piece of the jigsaw puzzle. They would say it gives them good reason to be strong, stable, capable government, critics would say it gives them perfect pretext to consolidate personal rule. But, you know, we've seen clamping down on press freedom, you know, foreigners who are critical of the system or scholars, journalists alike being not allowed in. The other things that make democracy so important, you know, free press, free association, free expression, all of that's being nibbled away. And I think that's a really disappointing turn of events and it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. Do you think that that's something that the the people are going to tolerate for long? I mean, it's democracy is such a movement in in countries like this that, especially amongst the youth, and there's there's parallels I think that can be said here for for Hong Kong and what they're going through at the moment as well. I read this week that students in Thailand were detained for throwing up the Hunger Games salute. The film's been banned in Thailand. Has and, it really? Yeah. So wow, okay. Yeah. You know, so you get a they're jittery, and I think there is an infrastructure, if you like, for protest in Thailand that's well established. So the organisational structures and, and, and the like that brought yellow shirts and the red shirts on the streets of Bangkok in the past could easily be mobilised again, I think, and that will be difficult to clamp down on. As in Hong Kong, if you've got a young population, if that population feels disenfranchised, if it feels economically marginalised, and that's really, in many respects, at the heart of the problems in Hong Kong, then I think the capacity of the military to manage it without having to resort to fairly significant coercion is going to be called into question. If you're sitting in the Junta's cabinet and thinking, what do we do to make this thing work? You've got to provide greater levels of economic opportunity and social opportunity for the disenfranchised of Thailand. And in some respects, that's what caused the problem in the first place, which was the ways in which firstly Thaksin Shinawatra and then his sister Yingluck, what they sought to do was a kind of paternalistic populism to provide economic opportunities, housing, food, jobs, 
to the rural disenfranchised, and they liked it for perfectly obvious reasons. For the military, which tends to instinctively follow the more royalist, Bangkok-focused approach of looking after the upper middle classes in the first instance, so interests are focused there, and much less concerned about lower socioeconomic groups and, and rural populations, if they continue to focus on that, we're going to end up back where we were with protests. Now, the question is, what does the military do? The military can crack down in ways which are fairly nasty. And I think there's... General Chanacho has got form on being fairly nasty on this in the past. And so I think the risks of popular protests are real. Consequently, the risks of a crackdown are quite significant. So I think they're aware of it. And I think they know that they want to try to chart a course that's not going to take them down that path. But I think it's going to be difficult for them to, to get there. And in parallel to that, the situation in Hong Kong, which, if I'm honest, has lasted a lot longer than I thought it would, but looks like it might be getting to the, the pointy end of the umbrella at the moment. Mm, yeah, and it looks like it's coming to, a, as you said, the pointy end of the umbrella, <laughs> uh, the umbrella revolution. It's it's actually been really interesting to watch Beijing's... How do they handle it, yeah. Way of the hand, ...which has been a lot more patient than I, than I think one might, might have anticipated. You know, if you'd said... If you'd said to someone, yeah, this time last year, in the middle of the next year, there'll be a popular protest in, in Hong Kong, how do you think Beijing's going to handle it? Most of us would have thought, oh, they'll, they'll try to be patient to point and then they'll crack down. What we've seen, that the big high volume protesters has ebbed away, but there's still protesters out there. There's still a movement. There's still a lot of pressure there. Beijing has, has been very patient on this. They've not rolled out the tanks. They've not let out the Red Guards or anything along those lines, which I think, given Xi Jinping's sort of reputation as being a hard man and playing a very hard game internally in China on reform, is, is interesting. And I think it shows a level of sophistication amongst the thinking in Beijing about how you manage stuff like this that we might not have anticipated. If we can move on now to an economic point, which is uh, figures that the IMF released saying that China is the biggest economy in the world, surpassing the United States, which, if we really want to look at it, is the way it's probably been for most of the time in history. So what does that sort of result mean now, and is it significant? I think it's symbolically significant, um, and that's about it. Yeah. I think there's a tendency to sort of get caught up in big aggregate numbers or purchasing power parity numbers. I think symbolically it's, it's important, as you said, it's sort of a return to the long-term norm and it's been coming. It's been coming for 25 years. It was just a question of when, not if. But as any senior Chinese official will tell you, you know, if you take a large number, the world's biggest economy, and divide it by the world's largest population, you get a pretty small number. Yeah, yeah. So if you look at what the wealth per capita is in China, it's still at lower middle income, not even middle income yet, brackets. If you then break it down into regions, and this is the thing that it, you really need to do in a country like China where you've got massive discrepancies, what life is like in Beijing or Shanghai or Xiamen, industrial financial hubs. If you then move out of there and start heading inland and you start going to places like Chengdu or Chongqing, even more economically deprived parts like Xinjiang or Tibet, economies that look much more like sub-Saharan Africa. So you've got this big country with enormous discrepancies of wealth and opportunity. So that when you say it's as big as the United States, that only tells you one very small thing. What we really want to know is what is life like economically in China. It is in a hugely diverse place. From one end, the richest people on the planet can be found living lives of, of unparalleled luxury. And at the other end, you've still got subsistence, semi-literate peasant farming uh, mm. and everything in between. 
and it's all occurring on a vast, vast scale. I mean, the real question that China is facing is how do you get an economy of that scale to take the next step? There is still a long, long way to go. So looking forward to the year ahead, what do you think are the significant moments in China that we've got? There's a couple of biggies. One is the reform program that Xi Jinping is undertaking. So he's been in power for essentially two years, but he has over that period of time concentrated more power in his hands than any previous leader in China since Mao. So the first question is, what's he going to do with it? Mm. Is he going to be like Mao? Or is he going to use this influence and power that he has to drive that kind of economic reform? In some ways, then, it's maybe encouraging that Hong Kong's situation has been allowed to continue the way that it has. Yeah, exactly. So I think if you look at Hong Kong as a litmus test of how China's going to handle things like popular protest, what sort of attitude it's got towards the need to let people express sentiment and to see the value in economic endeavour, then it's, it's reasonably positive. Related to the concentration of power, we've seen a big anti-corruption program, which is an anti-corruption program in one sense, that it's about trying to ensure that the party remains popular, but it's also about pushing rivals to one side and marginalising anyone who could threaten his power base. The, the question some analysts have is whether the scale of the anti-corruption reform program is so large that it actually infringes on economic development. On balance, I think most observers think it probably won't, but there's a risk around that. There's a sense, I think, of potentially building up some political instability in the future with the way in which he's gone about centralising power in his hands. So I think the things to watch in China are economic development and growth and the continued prospects of that, because there's lots of indicators coming out of China that things are slowing rather more than they and we would like, and politically to watch what happens with this reform program. And for the rest of Asia, is there any big changes well, there's no big elections. I mean, the only place where there's a, as a quote-unquote election is in Sri Lanka, faux election, one of yeah. those sort of sham elections in which you'll, you'll have a ruling elite that cooks the books to ensure that it, it gets itself in power. So there aren't any biggies like we had this year. So in some respects, the things to look for are what's going to happen to these economies. I think in India and Indonesia, 2015 will be when Jokowi and Modi will really be tested. Are they prepared to take on vested interests? Are they prepared to do the hard work? Are they going to be capable of cutting through the red tape, getting the bureaucracy to work better, getting governance working more effectively, really getting into corruption? And in India, probably the biggest challenge will be opening the economy up for foreign investment and foreign trade. So for 2015, in those two countries, as in the rest of Asia in some respects, it'll be can the economic reform program happen and become bedded down to really drive the next phase of economic growth. Because if it doesn't, we're scratching our heads where we're going to find economic growth globally because it's not going to come out of the US and it's not going to come out of Western Europe. It will be fascinating. I think you can lay money down that South China Sea, East China Sea, so the islands dispute between Japan and China, the territorial disputes between China and India will continue to flare up. India-Pakistan border will continue to be difficult to manage. The issues that are bubbling along will continue to bubble along and there will be surprises and we'll all be sitting there going, I couldn't imagine that this happened. Mm. Right. Thanks for your time today. Pleasure, Matt. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia. You can follow Nick Bisley on Twitter. He's at Nick Bisley. And if you want, you can follow me as well. I'm at Nightlight Guy. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in the iTunes store or on SoundCloud. I'm Matt Smith and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.